because it's an invisible enemy, unless you are in the emergency rooms, in the hospitals, or, or just dealing with death, unless you're telling patients' families, I'm sorry, your father just died, or, or your mother just died, or your child just died, um, it's hard to understand. So that's why I'm here yelling. Someone called me a quack. So that's true. I'm quacking really loud because um, because I found a piece of intelligence which, if deployed in the right time frame, will make all the difference. Hey friends, welcome to the Victor Marks podcast with Victor Marks, founder of All Things Possible Ministries. Welcome to the show where we bring you real conversations facing life's hard truths, stories of redemption, and the latest from the front lines. Whether you're on the road, getting your day started, or finally settling in, we've got an exciting new episode planned for you. So let's dive into today's show. Today we have a bonus episode for you, courtesy of The Frank Sontag Show and KKLA. We're pleased to share a conversation between Frank and Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. Early in the battle against COVID-19, his clinics have treated people with coronavirus and coronavirus-like symptoms using experimental treatments. His counsel has been sought after by President Trump and other leaders around the world. And we're happy to bring this insight to you as we wisely navigate the days ahead. Here's more from Frank and Dr. Zelenko. Thank you for joining us here on the Frank Sontag Show. We are literally going to jump right into our impact segment because of the nature of what we are about to discuss and time constraints for my guest. Impact is 20 plus minutes of uninterrupted dialogue and discussion. And I just want to cut to the chase and bring on my guest who is calling in from New York. If you have heard my program at all in the last three weeks, you have heard me make reference to a Dr. Zelenko in New York. With us is Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. Doctor, thank you for joining us. I know it's late there and you've had a busy day. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. Now, we're going to get right into it. Share a little bit about, obviously, you're in the news and why we have you on. And before we even get into the the, the gist of what you want to share, I want to ask you the why question. Why why are you speaking out so boldly these days? What is, is there a motivation or what's the underlying reasons? Well, people are dying. And uh, um, I feel that, uh, honestly, that I feel that God put me in a very unique situation. Um, and I'll, I'll elaborate that two years ago, I was diagnosed with uh, pulmonary artery sarcoma, a very rare cancer, uh, 10 people a year in the world essentially have it. And it's always found at autopsy because it's so difficult to diagnose. So it's considered 100% lethal. But in my case, um, they thought it was a blood clot. So I ended up having open-heart surgery, and uh, they discovered that it wasn't a blood clot. It, it was um, a, a tumor. So they cut out my right lung because they had spread there and cut out my pulmonary artery and reconstructed it. And then I went to, through a year of very difficult chemo. Um and, you know, it's statistically improbable that I'm still here, but I'm here and uh, I'm still on chemo. So that experience taught me three things, which actually became very useful um, in dealing with this crisis. Number one was to think outside the box. Since there was no tre treatment available, I was doing research and I actually discovered my own treatment in a sense. And I spoke to my oncologist and they they used that, and, and that had a big impact on, on my life. 
Uh, number two is not to be afraid. You know, when when someone is literally facing death, I have, I have eight children, thank God, and I was really preparing to say goodbye to them. And, and uh, when someone is already in that frame of mind, so it's I, I feel like I'm looking from the other world into this world. And I learned at that point not to be afraid of anything except except God. So that came useful. And then uh, to realize that everything is God's will and, and that you can control nothing. And if anything, God could make you, uh, you know, God says you and me can't live in the same place. You know, a person's sense of self or egoism uh, is an impediment for the revelation of the divine presence. So so the nullification of the self, making yourself humble and a vessel for the divine, um, is something that I've been uh, concentrating on. So when you get into this crisis, basically this is World War III, and that's not an exaggeration. 182 countries are fighting the same enemy. It's an invisible enemy, an invisible virus. And um, essentially the whole world has focused on uh, building more respirators or more ICU beds, and there's been zero emphasis on developing treatment approaches uh, while the patient is still uh, relatively healthy to prevent them from progressing to the point where they need a respirator. The thing here is not to build more respirators, it's to prevent people from needing respirators. So at this point, what does a doctor have to offer to a patient? Someone comes to a doctor, they diagnose them with the coronavirus, COVID-19. They say, okay, go home, uh, drink fluids, take time, and pray. And if you develop respiratory distress, go to the hospital, we'll intubate you, and you can develop uh, acute respiratory distress sy syndrome and have a more than 50% chance of dying. That's essentially what we're doing, telling patients around the world. And I wasn't satisfied with that. I, uh, I serve a community of 35,000 people in upstate New York. They live within a square mile, which basically means that the population density is, is very high. So I knew when, when this virus is going to hit, it's going to hit hard. And I had nothing to offer my patients. I'm a frontline soldier with no bullets. So that, that wasn't very uh, satisfying. So I started scouring the world's research. I mean, we, the Far East countries, South Korea and China, um, they had some success using hydroxychloroquine and uh, zinc. And then there, were the, there was a French study from Marseille that were using hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And then I called my colleagues in the ICU um, Lenox Hill Hospital in New York. I asked them how, how they're approaching the critically ill patients. So they told me they were experimenting with hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. So that's basically the information I had. And I thought to myself, well, I know these drugs. These are very common drugs. Uh, azithromycin is the most common antibiotic used in America. And hydroxychloroquine, maybe it's a little bit more obscure, but I've used it for 16 years with my rheumatological patients for lupus or rheumatoid arthritis, and even sometimes for malaria prophylaxis. So I'm very comfortable with these drugs. Uh, hydroxychloroquine is uh, 60 years old. No matter what the fear-mongering uh, media will tell you, it's probably safer, safer than Tylenol. And the most dangerous drug in my practice is Motrin, believe it or not. I send a dozen people a year or so with bleeding ulcers to the hospital. So I had zero uh, worry about using these drugs just because of my uh, experience and comfort level. And I decided, well, let, let me combine the Far East approach with the French approach, make a three-drug uh, cocktail, and modify the dosing to reflect uh, outpatient or less severe, um, you know, patients. And, and 
the most important thing is to initiate treatment immediately. You know, everywhere else in medicine, we like to put out a fire when it's small. We don't let it uh, get out of control because then it's very difficult to put out. So if someone comes in with appendicitis, you don't let them rupture before you treat them, right? You intervene early. Or if someone comes in with strep throat, you don't let them develop rheumatic heart disease and need open-heart surgery before you treat them. You treat them early. Someone has influenza virus, so you need to see them within 48 hours, and you give them Tamiflu. The whole idea is to um, treat the viral infection or, or any infection before it gets out of control. But that's not what we're doing with the coronavirus. What are we doing? Um, the government essentially, some state governments, have tied the hands of certain physicians and uh, basically, we're telling you, you cannot treat these patients, but when they develop catastrophic lung injury and end up in the hospital, then you can give it to them. It's beyond moronic, actually. So what, what I started to do was to empirically diagnose, because the, the problem with the corona um, PCR nasal swab test takes three days to get the results, which is the essence of the problem. You know, you have 72 hours there where you can really intervene and make a big difference, and yet you have to wait until the lab comes back to tell you something you, you already know anyway. It's very easy to diagnose this infection. Uh, any seasoned clinician could even smell it by now. So um, so what I started to do was I would, uh, if I suspected the patient had it clinically, I would initiate treatment immediately, and if I had the test, I would do the test also. And, and I was 90% uh, correct. 92% correct in the sense that I knew whoever I tested was, was going to be positive. So, um, and the, but again, the most important thing is I, I initiated treatment immediately. And so let me tell you what, I, what, what, what are my statistics. So by this point, my team, it's not only me, it's, I have uh, other doctors, other physician assistants. Uh, we've seen 1,450 uh, patients with uh, COVID-19. Um, out of those patients, I didn't treat everyone. I, I divided them into two groups, low risk and high risk. Low risk is essentially any patient less than the age of 60 with no medical problems. Um, and the reason why they're low risk is because statistically 99% of them are going to get better without any treatment except supportive care and, and follow-up. So uh, there was really no need to deploy or use medication in those uh, people because, you know, why expose people to unnecessary uh, risk of side effects if they're going to get better anyway? But the high-risk group, which I'll define as over the age of 60 with any symptoms, or anyone with medical problems such, such as cancer, diabetes, high blood pressure, um, heart disease, and, and things like that, uh, or anyone that just looked sick in my office, uh, had difficulty breathing, they just didn't look good, I, I uh, classified them as high-risk, and that's important because the high-risk population has, depending on which country you look at, between 5 to 10% mortality, meaning 5 to 10% of these patients die. So everything in life is a risk versus benefit analysis. So I decided that it, the benefit of treating these patients outweighs the risk by several orders of magnitude. And let me explain to you, you're going to have all this fear-mongering about hydroxychloroquine, and um, no one knows what they're talking about. And if they do, and, and they still say it, they have nefarious motives. Doctor, let me, let, me, let me reintroduce you just for those joining us. This is Dr. Vladimir Zelenko. Uh, calling in from New York. He's been in the news recently. He's going to talk about his protocol and maybe a lot of misinformation that, that is out there. Continue, doctor. I apologize for interrupting. Hydroxychloroquine is a very safe drug. It has a theoretical risk of what's called QT prolongation. Um, I spoke to three electrophysiologists, 
These are cardiologists that specialize in heart rhythm issues. Between the three of them, they had 100 years of clinical experience. I asked them, have you ever seen a problem with hydroxychloroquine? They said no. So I said, how would you um, quantify the risk? They said probably somewhere in one in a thousand. So think about it this way. Uh, let's say you have a thousand patients in the high risk category, right? A hundred of them are going to die. However, one of them may have a negative outcome from the medication. Yeah, so I, would, words, I, I would I, think you'd be you'd be willing to take the risk. It's undeniable. It's a hundred to one. Well, come on, the hundred people to listen. No, we don't want. This is war. You know, whenever uh, there's war, there's unfortunately people die and, and there's collateral damage and friendly fire. It's, it's, it's terrible. It should never happen. But we have to make decisions as a society what's, what's for the greater good. And if there's a medication that can save 10% of the population, high-risk population, and has a one in a thousand risk, and it's only theoretical, by the way, um, I, I think it's a no-brainer and it, it's a non-issue. And, I, and so let me tell you my numbers. So uh, out of those 1,450 patients, I treated with medication only 405. So those were the high-risk patients. So statistically, you would expect 5% of them to be dead. So that's 20 patients. 20 patients dead and a multiple 40 patients or so on respirators. That's what you would see statistically. That's what people are seeing. Uh, what did I see? Now, keep in mind, these patients I, I treated early. I had two patients die and four patients on a respirator. And those four patients are now off the respirator. And also I had five patients in the hospital with pneumonia for IV antibiotics, and now uh, they're doing all better. So, uh, again, let me summarize. I had two patients die out of 405, unfortunately, and four on the respirator. You would expect 20 dead and 40 on the respirator. So, look, I, I didn't uh, set out to discover anything, but... I'm not stupid, and I, and I realize what the significance of disinformation is. It's like, by way of analogy, a frontline soldier who finds a very important piece of intelligence, and he needs to communicate this intelligence to the five-star general because this intelligence could win the war. Yeah, let me. That's let how me, I felt. Yeah, let me let me ask along those lines. So, for those that may not know, what is the intelligence? In other words, what is the protocol you're using? And how has it been received? I mean, if this is a war, you would think the generals and the higher-ups and the four-stars, they would go, oh, th this is valuable to win the war. So two-fold question, what is the actual protocol you're using and how is it received? So it's hydroxychloroquine, 200 milligrams, one pill twice a day for five days, azithromycin, and don't confuse that with z because z is a is a uh, dose schedule. But azithromycin, 500 milligrams, one pill a day for five days. And then zinc sulfate, 220 milligrams, one pill a day for five days. Now, I'll explain to you the rationale behind the treatment. It's not magic. It actually has a basis in science. Uh, how is it received? Um, you know, the problem is that many people who are not on the front lines still delude themselves to think that this is peacetime. And um, so in, 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 in the analogy of the war, with respect to the military, these are the pencil pushers that are in offices that don't don't even know what the front lines, let alone what combat looks like. I mean, I'm seeing death and suffering on a scale that I've never seen in my life. My colleagues also. And it's amazing we're not having emotional breakdown. And the only reason we don't have emotional breakdowns, we don't have time to think about it. But it's unbelievable the scale of the suffering. So these people that are, are shielded from that 
and this is this is I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt that their motives are not nefarious, but uh, they still operate. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine Washington D.C. is being carpet bombed. Do you think uh, Dr. Fauci would say, "Well, let me spend four months figuring out which bullets work the best"? Wow. Or would he use whatever's at his disposal? He'll take his research pencil and throw it at the planes. Wow. Yeah, you would think so, you would think the latter. You would hope and pray the latter. Right. So the problem is that because it's an invisible enemy, unless you are in the emergency rooms, in the hospitals, or, or just dealing with death, unless you're telling patients' families, I'm sorry, your father just died, or, or your mother just died, or your child just died, um, it's hard to understand. So that's why I'm here yelling. Someone called me a quack. So that's true. I'm quacking really loud. Because... Um, because I found a piece of intelligence which, if deployed in the right time frame, will make all the difference. And at this point, by the way, it's no longer anecdotal. Initially, everyone says anecdotal, anecdotal. Right now, um, we're coming out with a with a data, with a study. Hopefully, it'll be published in JAMA, uh, the yeah. journal of uh, the England, New England Journal of Medicine, and it's going to have over 2,000 patients. Because not not all, I'm not the only one doing it anymore. Um, so we have combi combining uh, data from many physicians that are have the same experience, and we're going to present it to the world. That's number one. Number two, um, I actually found it in cooperation with the hospital system in Long Island. Uh, we're going to do a, uh, a, a double-blind randomized trial, a multimillion-dollar trial, actually, approved by the FDA, to actually test these theories and, and so on, which is going to take a few months. Keep in mind, I'm not against traditional medical studies. It's just you have to understand that we don't have time. You can't just sit behind in your desk and let a million people die while you figure out which bullets are the shiny. Yeah, in other words, we hear this uh, clinical trials, you have to wait three, four months, and, and the, 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 the resistance or the overtures that say, like you say, this is quackery, this is nonsense. You're suggesting we don't have that time, and yet the anecdote is being proven right now, if you will. Let me tell you, I don't know if you know what's going on in Brazil, but the president of Brazil is a fan of mine. Um, he, he, he follows me on social media, and um, he saw my videos, and he actually permitted in his country the uh, administration of my protocol in the outpatient setting. And uh, they've been doing it for three and a half weeks. And uh, this Friday, last Friday, they came out with a study that they had a decrease of death by 95%. Do you understand what I just said? Staggering. And and this the same data was reproduced by uh, Dudier in, in in Marseille. He he also um, it's a little different his protocol, but essentially it's the same concept. And he's also had he had a ninety percent reduction. So think about it. now we have a, a group of doctors in France, France, uh, France in Europe. You have in Brazil a different continent, and now you have in America a group of doctors. Not only me. And we're all seeing the same thing. So anyone who denies its validity is just a moron or he has really, uh, really dark motives. Well, and I'll tell you what you do. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to ask on that. So misinformation, disinformation, we hear in the mainstream so much like uh, th this is Pollyannish. 
um, and you say motivation behind it. But can you address a little more of that? You, you've obviously gotten pushback. I just went online before we went on the air, and there's articles about how you're like, uh, now you're a right winger and blah, blah, blah. It, and it is a war. It's a war for what is true, and it's a war for life. Well, first of all, this virus kills the right and the left equally. Um, you know, it doesn't discriminate by your political affiliation. So I don't think that this is a political issue. It shouldn't be, at least. It's a human life issue. But uh, here, here's the reality, okay? Regardless of my political uh, views, which are irre- irrelevant to the conversation, but the president of the United States, I think three and a half weeks ago, had a press conference, and he said the following, that he feels that hydroxychloroquine is a game changer. He has a good feeling about it, and it could be one of the sig- most significant uh, developments in the history of medicine. Um, he said it. I was using the drug 10 days before he said it, but wherever he got his information, he was right. And whatever his uh, intuition or his instincts were, he, he was right. And you'll see, how, uh, you'll see my words will be uh, proven right in the next three, four months. But the, pro- the, the reality is it's an election year, and half the country does not want the president to be elected. So what does that mean? that if this works out to be true, then this is obviously a political win for the president, rightfully so, by the way. And there are forces at play here that would rather see the economy crash and burn, and unfortunately people die on a mass scale, rather than to give the president a political win. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko is my guest. Um, Again, I beg your patience. Um, I I know we have a very limited amount of time with you. I also want to ask you about motivations. My first thought is, there's a greed factor here, too, if you look at, like, Big Pharma. I'm getting to it, yeah. Okay. Okay, it's, it's, four, it's multifactorial. There's four, four points that I want to bring out. So one, we talked about the political – actually, I think it's the epitome of evil, actually. But um, yeah. put that aside. Then you have Big Pharma, right? They invested a lot of money, and, and there's a lot of uh, – and they do great things. I'm really happy we have them. You know, they've eradicated many diseases and they've made our lives better. But in this particular case – uh, the treatment I'm advocating costs $20. Do, do you hear what I just said? It's $20, and it's by mouth. So what does that mean? That you could scale it nationally, at least, and globally, for sure. Um, and it's cheap, and you can give it by mouth, so you don't need to be in a hospital, right? You don't need IV. Now, that's a poke in the eye to to Big Pharma. They, they may lose a lot of money from this. If, That's number two. Uh, before we get to three and four, so if that is carried out, and I also want to get to what, what do you want to ideally have happen, how can we get this out there, along the lines of if it's an appeal and you can get it to kind of the, the front lines, the implications of that are mind-boggling as it applies to what we hear and what the outcome can really be. So let me tell you what the uh, uh, implications are. Please. This will become no different than treating any other infection. The economy could reopen in three days, and we can reduce the death rate by 95% by giving primary care doctors these drugs and instructing them to initiate treatment immediately. Now, this is a difficult question. What has to happen for that to be a reality? Well, uh, there has to be perhaps enough corpses Mm. to um, shake up the political will, Mm. perhaps. Um, I prefer that not happen, because human life is precious, and we're all made in God's image. So I've been working 19-hour days to generate the data 
to be able to. I'm in direct contact with the president's team. Um, I made a video, I was, was going to say, and, and I addressed it to the president of the United States, you know, the five-star general. I said, listen, I really need your help. And the next day, Mark Meadows called me, the president's uh, chief of staff. He's a good man. And he said, I think so, too. Yep. And he asked me what I was what I was doing. I told him he said he was very interested. And uh, he asked me to keep in touch with him, which I had his uh, email and, and cell number. And uh, every few days, I would text him or email him with some updates. And then um, a few days later, Sean Hannity, somehow I ended up on Sean Hannity's radio show, and uh, we discussed my uh, protocol. That same evening, Sean spoke to the vice president uh, about my protocol. And uh, and then two days later, uh, uh, Rudy Giuliani called me, and I ended up doing a 45-minute uh, uh, podcast with him. And after that, the whole world exploded for me. I've, I've now consulted with governments. Governments have called me. Um, Peru, Panama, Honduras, um, Ukraine, Russia, South Africa, Israel. Israel has already adopted my protocols. I've been dealing with their Minister of Health, and now it's, it's being adopted. And Brazil, as I mentioned earlier, was literally the first to come, come on board. Um, and so I've been busy, and, and the, the, the issue here is a public awareness and lack of political will, because, or really, we need to give the president the information, uh, and, and, and I'm, I'm almost there. In the next week or two, we should have the data packaged and, and in such a way that it can be presented to the highest levels of academia, um, irrefutable statistics. Um, and this is not only, it's not Dr. Zelenko's data. It's right. a meta-analysis. It's a data from many providers from different places, all generating the same statistic. Basically, you start treating treatment earlier, you um, mitigate the severity of the complications. So let me tell you how these drugs work, because it's important that people understand. You have an intelligent audience. Zinc kills virus. Problem is, the virus is inside the cell. The zinc cannot get inside the cell for biochemical reasons. All hydroxychloroquine does, it opens up a door, a channel, and allows for the zinc to go from outside the cell to inside the cell. And that's important because that's where the virus is, and it, it prevents the virus from, from making copies of itself or replicating or reproducing. So what that does is it lowers the viral load, amount of virus, and that gives a, a a person's immune system, especially a compromised person, a, a high-risk patient, a, a weak patient, gives their immune system time to get rid of the virus before the virus destroys the lungs. Because what happens with this virus is when it gets into the lungs, it begins to destroy the cells. Right. That's and when it begins to destroy, destroy the cells, it leaves this, all these biological trillions yeah. of cells destroyed, yeah. biological de debris that clogs up the lungs. It's like pouring cement into lungs. Mm -hmm. And then the real fun begins when the immune system wakes up and basically pours napalm into the lungs, yeah. and the person's dead. So the whole idea is to prevent that from happening. It's, it's to prevent the person from progressing where they develop catastrophic pulmonary complications. And the only way we could do that is by attacking this virus early and hard, without mercy, because this is an enemy that the wor a world enemy that needs to be destroyed. Anyway, so so th that's the concept, and and 
in reality, you know, if someone has a cellulitis of his foot, you don't wait for them to be, become septic and have dead mm-hmm. before you give them medicine. Mm-hmm. You treat them right away. If someone has an appendicitis, you don't wait for it to rupture. You treat them right away. So it's the same idea. Someone has the flu, you treat them right away. Someone has COVID-19, you treat them right away. It should be no different. It should be no different than any other approach that we do in medicine. Let me reintroduce you. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko is my guest. I want to keep track of your time. We've got a few minutes. You've got the airwaves. Whatever you want to convey to the listeners, any way we can help, anything you want to share, again, you've got our attention. So first of all, I'm glad that I know your, your audience is a God-fearing audience. So, number one, everything's up to God, and we should pray for His salvation, number one. Number two, we need to uh, arouse and wake up every single politician that we could to begin to make so much noise that it becomes impossible politically for, um, for the truth to be suppressed. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. And, and I don't care about anything else except the preservation of human life. And by the way, the economy reopening is the preservation of human life. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, all these statistics that they show, only 40,000 only, only 40, people dead, it's not true. It's an underestimate. Because, first of all, I know that nursing home deaths are not being reported. And in some nursing homes, they have 20% mortality. Number two, this collateral damage. How about all the people that are having heart attacks that aren't getting care? Strokes, yep. diabetic uh, emergencies, all these other routine things because the medical system is, is super saturated, that they can't get the care. How many of those are dying? And how many people are dying from suicide, from social isolation, from having financial ruin? None of that has been factored in into that number that uh, they're showing us on, on television. So th- the reality is that this is a, is a catastrophe of, of historic proportions uh, that no one alive has ever experienced anything like this. That's why it's so hard to conceptualize. Perhaps the 1918 flu was the best analogy we can think where 100 million people died worldwide. But this is time to, to pray and to grow up intellectually, emotionally, and spiritually, see the situation, accept the reality for what it is, and act to be brave. This is a wartime footing. This is a battlefield medicine. You cannot do business as usual. And if you do, by the way, I want to make a statement here. Anyone who gets in the way of the dissemination of this life-saving medication is guilty of crimes against humanity and should be brought to the Hague and charged with war crimes. Well, your comments remind me of the governor of Nevada. Uh, And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know there are states that... There are states that have blocked this to, to Not only. I'm in New York. That speaks for itself. Yeah. I, I have to tell you that um, um, this is something so historic that it, it's on par with the Civil War, let's say, and how the South looked after uh, the war was over. And they are on the wrong side of history. There's going to be a chunk of people here, politicians and academics and physicians and and just uh, the media, who are going to, for, for history, will go down in history as the Wilt Chamberlain, the, the South of the Civil War, the people that were obstructionists and caused mass murder and, and, and unnecessary death. 
This is the scale of what we're doing. And by the way, I'm not exaggerating. 182 countries are fighting the same enemy. So, anyway, my plea to the American people is to demand that this life-saving medication be given to the frontline soldiers so they so we have the bullets to fight the war. Dr. Vladimir Zelenko has been my guest. I, I know you need to go. I, I hope and pray we can call on you again. I hope and pray maybe you get, Anytime. in terms of media coverage, so busy you, you can't do enough. But thank you for getting the word out, um, and, and thank you for challenging us to fear God, pray to him, his will be done, and yet we all need to do our part. Agreed. And thank you so much. God bless you. God bless you too. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. We'd love to stay connected with you and invite you to the conversation beyond this podcast. You can check out more of the work we're doing around the world at victormarks.com, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all linked in the show notes. Be sure to drop us a comment in the review section if today's show has impacted you in any way or if there's anything you'd like to hear more of. We're always encouraged to hear from you. Thanks for spending your time with us. Until next time.